And we're in the series at the moment called Restoring Faith. And uh, Hebrews 11 verse 6 is such a pivotal kind of verse in thinking around this because uh, Hebrews 11 verse 6 says this. If you're taking notes, it's, it's well worth reflecting on. Is without faith, it is impossible to please the Lord. Without faith, it's impossible to please the Lord. And we are wanting to be a people who live lives of faith. So verse in particular that is very dear and, and, and important to Inez and I, and uh, you might have remembered me sharing this a couple of times, is that a number of years ago, going back four or five years ago, we realized as Christian leaders, our lives were so safe that we couldn't remember the last time we prayed with faith. And it's possible that Christians, as Christians, we can kind of slip into a rhythm of life that becomes safe and nice and comfortable, and we realize that there is no faith in our lives. We had, uh, all our friends were believers, uh, we only acted or interacted with, with Christians, and, and, and life was just so nice, and we didn't have faith, we didn't need faith. And so we pray to pray, God, take us to a place where every day we need to exercise faith and trust you for what we need to get through the day. And God answered that prayer. He answered that one. He answered it 100%. And so, uh, but it's just been the most incredible journey. And this is why we're doing a series called Restoring Faith. Because it's quite possible that as people of God, we could be living our lives in such a way that we're not stepping into faith. We're not exercising faith. We're not living with faith. And as we've seen through the history of uh, God's people and something that Steve has been mentioning in his messages, uh, when we look at God's people, whenever God does something big, it's always preceded by faith. He takes his people to a place where they need to walk in faith. Exercise faith. Trust God a little bit more than what they have before. And I think that's where we're at as a church. God is doing so much. We just uh, can't kind of wrap our heads around when we talk as elders and staff or just what God is doing in your lives and, and through us as a church. But we also know what we're trusting God for. And we're walking in faith. And so we really feel that the Lord is speaking to us as a church and as individuals. He wants us to grow in our faith, hence the series, Restoring Faith. We're going to be looking at that again this morning. We're going to be looking at an aspect of faith uh, to just carry on equipping ourselves what God is doing in us as a church. You can start turning in your Bibles to Psalm 130. You're going to need to find it. We don't have uh, the screen this morning. I was actually hoping to get up here and have the screen slowly like reveal and then I'd kind of be on stage, but I didn't get that right uh, this morning. But use your phones, uh, a Bible, get something so that we can read through it together. We're going to be in Psalm 130 this morning. You see, we've been speaking about faith over the last few weeks. We've been talking about things like we know that faith isn't like uh, magic and this force like Star Wars that if I, if I just can somehow grab hold of faith, 
everything's going to be okay. You know, if I, if I can find faith in, I'll be rich and, and life will be perfect and, and all my problems will go away. Somehow through uh, just bad teaching and bad understanding of Scripture, uh, people have kind of taught us that if we kind of just rub the Bible and believe hard enough, this genie's going to pop up and kind of grant us kind of three wishes. And that's kind of what we think about with faith. But we know that that's not true, that our faith is in the person of Jesus. And that faith, as we, we heard two weeks ago, as small as a mustard seed, it's about planting and nurturing and walking and growing and trusting in God. But what happens when a crisis hits? What happens when everything is going well in our lives and all of a sudden, the wheels come off. See, as Christians, sometimes we, when we think about faith and incorrectly thinking about faith, when a season comes that's really difficult to explain and understand, that can really derail us as believers. See, when we're taught that as believers, you're supposed to be healthy and wealthy and, and, and just everything is supposed to be perfect from the moment that you get saved and start following Jesus, uh, when something comes that kind of derails us, we don't know how to reconcile that in our minds. We don't know how to handle pain. We don't know how to handle suffering. We don't know how to handle uh, things that kind of seem to go wrong. And that causes people to lose faith, to kind of turn away from God because we don't know how to exercise and walk in faith when things are really tough. And this is what Psalm 130 speaks to. So I hope you have it because I want to read it this morning. And here is how Psalm 130 goes. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can, with reverence, serve you. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. And in his word, I put my hope. I wait for the Lord. More than the watchman wait for the morning. More than the watchman wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord. For with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. What a beautiful uh, psalm that we're going to kind of walk through this morning. And here we see this prayer, the psalmist writing the first few words of the psalm. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. See, again, maybe there's already even a bit of a disconnect. See, as people, uh, maybe this is true for you, maybe this isn't, but we're not great at sharing with people just how much we are struggling. 
that somehow we've created a culture within Christianity that my life needs to look perfect. We don't like to come and talk to people about the pain that we're going through, that maybe things are rocky at home and you start to get ready for church and all of a sudden you might have been fighting for five days as a family, things are going rough, but you get into the car, you walk out and everything looks great for the hour and a half that you're at church. We somehow portray that to be a Christian and to be in community is to keep our struggles to ourselves. We keep our pain to ourselves. We keep um, the things that are are going wrong in our lives, the things that we're battling with uh, internal because maybe we don't want to be those people. You know, we don't want to be a burden. And maybe you've even used that language. We're not going to share this week at Life Group about what's going on. We don't want to be a burden on people. You know, we don't want to be the ones that are struggling. Now, and I don't know if it's kind of tied into maybe I need to fit in, I need for community, you know, because sure, you know, if we don't have our stuff together, you know, maybe we're not going to be invited to stuff. Maybe we're not going to be seen as people, you know, who other people want to be around because our life is, is just such a mess. And for some reason, we uh, create a culture where we have to look like everything is okay. But what I love so much about the start um, of this psalm is you can really hear some pain. Out of the depths, I cry to you. You can just see in those words that uh, the the psalmist is not okay. Out of the depths, I cry to you. Lord, turn your ears to me. I need your mercy. So important to to see that it's okay to be struggling. It's okay to to say, I, I, I'm in pain, things are, are going wrong, and to step into that space because, you know, to deny suffering is to deny something very real in our lives because if we think about uh, Scripture and especially Ecclesiastes, the writer of Ecclesiastes warns us that life is not going to be okay. In fact, to be human is to experience pain that we know that every single one of us is going to go through multiple seasons in our lives. That, in fact, we're going to go through every season that there is under the sun. Some of you have experiencing great seasons at the moment. You know, you finished studying, you're in the workspace, uh, you've recently gotten married, there's just so much joy and celebrating in your friends' lives. But others in, in the room here are going through different seasons. Because we know that our bodies fade. And so many of us are, in fact, in seasons of grief. Because the last few years of your life have uh, just been uh, about saying goodbye to members of your family and bearing people that you loved so dearly. You, You know, we are in a whole host of seasons. And so as believers, to deny pain... And to deny that, you know, as Christians we suffer is to deny something about our humanity and to deny what life is actually even about. I love this quote by P.T. Forsyth. He wrote this. He said, the depth is simply the height inverted. As sin is the index for moral grandeur, the cry is not only truly human, but divine as well. See, God is deeper than the deepest depth in man. 
and he is holier, then our deepest sin is deep. There is no depth so deep as to when God reveals his holiness in dealing with our sin. And so think more of the depth of God than the depth of our cry. I'll say that bit again. So think more of the depth of God than the depth of our cry. The worst thing that can happen to a man is to have no God to cry out to from the depth. The worst thing that can happen to a man is to have no God to cry out to from the depth. I love the faith of the psalm. The writer is able to cry out to God from a very deep place of suffering. But isn't it just so incredible that in faith we have a God that we can cry out to? It's not to deny pain, but to go, yes, God, hear me. See, the psalm shows that suffering is a reality, but that God is a reality as well. And I love that this is a prayer. And I love how many times the phrase or the word Lord or God, depending on your translation, is mentioned. I think maybe as much as eight times in the short psalm, the, the word the Lord or God is mentioned. This is a prayer and a cry out in a very personal way to God. The psalm is immersed in suffering and immersed in prayer. And I just love how the character and the nature of God is mentioned. And this is where we start to see faith and suffering. Because what I love about the psalm is there's no antidote for suffering here. There's no kind of, it's not uh, denying suffering. It's not glorifying suffering. It's not kind of giving any excuses or any kind of answers. What it is doing is highlighting the very nature and character of God. And again, if you look at kind of the history of God's people in the Bible, this is what happens time and time again. You don't find like a miracle cure for pain and suffering. Whenever God's people endure pain or hardships, it's always kind of highlighted by the nature and the character of God. That's what kind of gets through uh, hard times. And that's the faith of what the psalm is. Look at some of the descriptions of God in Psalm 130. Let me even just highlight, underline, just uh, kind of bring them out here. Because when they're acknowledging their pain, they're acknowledging who God is. I mean, love, if you kept a record of sins, who could stand? But no, with you there is forgiveness. See, my hope is in you. Lord, you are a God of unfailing love. In you, God, there is full redemption. In you, you will redeem Israel from all of their sins. Look at some of the things that are are highlighted as the very nature and character of God as the antidote for suffering. So important to see that. In the middle of the psalm, there's an an interesting kind of stanza from verse 5, if you're reading with me. It says, I will wait for the Lord. My whole being waits And in his word, I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than the watchmen wait for the morning. More than the watchmen wait 
for the morning. And I love the example of a watchman. And I, I need you to just kind of imagine with me and kind of take your mind to what that must be like to when there were small little cities and they were kind of walled in and there would be a certain time where for safety, everyone came into the city, the city gates were closed and the watchman would be posted on the wall uh, through the night for his vigil. What can the watchman control? He can't control much. Can the watchman bring about dawn faster? No. Can he do anything with any of the the moon and the stars and the sun? He cannot control any of that. Yes, he is on the lookout for stragglers. Yes, he's on the watch uh, for danger from people in the city. But when it comes to dawn, The watchman knows that dawn is coming. He knows at the start of his shift, when it is dark, a time is going to be coming when the sun peaks on the horizon and everything lights up again and he can step down from his post. See, I love uh, what this image brings because there is a certainty to the nature and character of God that the writer knows about. The watchman knows with certainty that dawn will come. There is no fear in him that what happens if it doesn't happen today? He knows the sun will rise. Morning will come. And with faith and suffering in the life of a believer, it's going, I am experiencing suffering. God, I'm crying out to you from the depths of my pain. Turn your ear to me. Be attentive, God. I need your mercy. But the faith is, I know morning is coming. I know that what I'm crying out to is the unchanging, truthful track record of a faithful God who has always been there with his people. Now, maybe I don't know how it's going to work itself out. I don't know how God is going to work it out. See, the end is unclear. I know God is working for me. Somehow, through some mechanism, I am going to get through this because the Lord is at work. He's always been at work. He has always been for his people. He's proven it over and over and over and over again. If you look at scripture, this is just a track record of the faithfulness of God to his people. And so as the watchman is on the wall waiting for dawn, here is the psalmist writing, I will sit and wait. My heart waits for you, God. It's unclear. It's hard. But by faith, I know, God, you are for me. That you are good. I mean, again, look at how it's described in the psalm. You are a God of unfailing love. God, it's you who redeems Israel. It's you who forgives sins. I know who you are. I don't doubt your character for one bit. So I hope, I hope, because dawn is coming. Somehow I'm gonna get through this. Somehow, God, you're gonna make a way because you do, you always have. The Psalm 130 is part of a collection of psalms called the Psalms of the Ascent. 
Very important psalms in the life of Israel because Israel uh, or Jerusalem was a very small city. Uh, Most of Israel didn't live in Jerusalem. They lived outside of Jerusalem. And what would happen is there would be moments when they would have to go back to Jerusalem for festivals and feasts and important days. And so they would travel. And it's called the Psalm of Ascent as Jerusalem's a little bit higher. And so they would ascend on their journey to Jerusalem. And uh, there are about 15 Psalms. uh, And these uh, specific Psalms of the Ascent were a a discipleship tool, a a journey. uh, And when they would make the journey back to Jerusalem, an Israelite, a follower of God, would always read these Psalms as a way of preparing them to get back to uh, the temple and and get back to Jerusalem. And it's very much a discipleship process for them, a reminder of who God is and how to follow him. And I, I love this so much because, again, being discipled into knowing that I can trust God in my pain I can trust him in my suffering. I can cry out to him. This was there to remind them that we can do that. And then I was thinking, church, this morning, how much has happened in history since the writing of the psalm? How much more do we have available to us to fortify our souls against the hardships that we're facing every single day in our lives? How much more faith do we get to exercise as a church than what this psalmist even had? Because as uh, the psalm speaks, it's you who redeems Israel from their sin. Who is the very object of our faith? Jesus. And this psalmist was only looking forward to what we look back on. The resurrection and ascension of Jesus over our greatest enemies. Sin, shame, and death. That we sit here this morning, and while things are going really badly in some of our lives, uh, either you've experienced pain or you're going to experience pain because we are human, we're sitting here this morning knowing that what this psalmist wrote about, about how God, you redeem all Israel uh, from their sins, is we've experienced that. We look back and know that Jesus died on the cross in my place for my sin. That he rose in victory over them and ascended and is now at the right hand of the Father. That as we gathered here this morning, even if, even if things don't work out how we are hoping, that even if the suffering and the pain never leaves, our salvation is secure. That even then, that we go through this life with temporary pain to eternal glory. Isn't that just incredible? Again, Scripture is just so full of object lessons and analogies for us to uh, fortify ourselves with this. And I... Uh, Eugene Peterson, he gives a good analogy um, of the psalm, and, and he looks at it from two professions, uh, a painter and an ophthalmologist. 
Uh, and uh, how those two uh, see things or engage a little bit differently is this. And if you think about it, when we uh, do tell someone, you know, we've got a little bit of pain, it's like our dads. Uh, how many of your dads, uh, and dads maybe in this room, you can also put up your hand, have a home remedy that you believe is a cure for something? So you make it up yourself like it's window cleaner, a little bit of salt and lemon juice, and that's going to heal the spider bites. Right? When, when I was uh, younger, my dad made uh, hot milk and whiskey, and he gave it to me to drink. Uh, how many of you guys like, uh, were forced to drink like cayenne pepper, uh, a little bit of turmeric, ginger, uh, honey, and tea? Come on, ha- hands up. Who? Home remedies, right? Okay. So uh, some of you are just uh, uh, are shamefully keeping your hand down. So the moment we say, you know... Um, things are really difficult at the moment. My child just will not sleep through the night. Every mom, yo, have you tried this? Have you tried this? Have you tried this? Oh, you know, you have to try this and, and you've got to try this. And, and the moment we do venture out and say things are not going so well, we are just bombarded with a million self-cures and, and home remedies and, and auntie's fail-safe kind of methods. And that's the painter. You see, what the painter does in his skill is paints the world how he sees it or paints the world how she sees it. But what the ophthalmologist does, somebody who works on your eye, is they help you see the world for what it really is. Painter paints the world how they see it. The ophthalmologist shows you how, what the world or how the world really is. And again, this is what the psalm does, is it gives us eyes to see, again, that pain is real, but so is God. He is also real. And what do we know about him? Well, David writes in the Psalms, I was young and then I was old, and this I know to be true. I've never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging for bread. We just know that to be true about God. That's the way the world is. Israel as an object lesson is they could blow it over and over and over again, but could they ever blow it beyond God rejecting them and his people? No. There was nothing that they could do as a people to end the relationship that God had had. When he said, I will be your God, you will be my people, God never went back on his word. Uh, Something that I've been thinking about for a long time is uh, the season in the life of God's people when they're about to enter the promised land coming out of Egypt, they messed up. They didn't have faith in God. They didn't trust God for the victory. And so they were rejected. God said, you will not, as a generation, enter into the promised land. You're gonna die in the desert. But they didn't die then and there on the spot. In God's grace and love and faithfulness, he carried a sinful people for a generation. Just kind of think about that for a moment. A wandering nation, they reckon as much as three million people were fed every day and every night from the direct provision of God. And they were sinful. They rejected God, they didn't trust him, yet God still provided for them. What does that say about the nature and the character of God? When we say that he is unfailing in his love for us, when he is unfailing in the way that he cares for us and provides for us as his people. 
The weight of proof is just undeniable. If you're writing down notes, again, I'm just sorry that there's nothing on the screen. Hebrews 4, verse 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who was tempted in every way that we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Such an important verse for us when we think about how we engage with God because, again, here we go. At the start of the Psalm 130, God, hear my cry, uh, hear my cry, I need your mercy. Hebrews uh, 4 verse 16, then let us approach the throne. Remember, we're on the other side of history. They were looking forward to what Jesus was going to do. We look back and celebrate and hold on to what Jesus has done. He is um, at the right hand of God. We approach the throne. I love that word throne. Because throne conveys lordship. It conveys that God is ruling over everything. But because of the work of Jesus and our salvation, we're not enemies but uh, children of God. So we, with confidence, come into the throne room where we receive mercy and grace. The very thing the psalmist is crying out for, because of what we have in Jesus, is what we receive. You can hear those words that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. This is one of the only prayers that we're guaranteed to have answered. Every prayer we pray is not guaranteed an answer, except for this one, that we approach the throne with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. It's just incredible to see what we have is that we approach God as a son, as a daughter, and we receive mercy, we find grace. I love these quotes again uh, by Eugene Peterson. Uh, he writes a book called um, a, a Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And speaking about faith and hope, uh, and especially in relation to the psalm, I love this. So just uh, hear these words written by Eugene Peterson. He says this, Hoping does not mean doing nothing. It is not fatalistic resignation. It means going about our assigned tasks, confident that God will provide the meaning and the conclusions. It is not compelled to work away at keeping up appearances with a bogus spirituality. It is the opposite of desperate and panicky manipulations of scurrying and worrying. See, sometimes what we like to do is we like to try and make our own plans and then say, God, I need you to just stamp this and do it. But hope is actually putting ourselves on the line in, in, in line with God and saying, God, this is rough. I'm trusting you. Here's my prayer of faith as I cry out for you, God, intervene in my situation. And somehow in this space, it's not um, 
just kind of sitting and doing absolutely nothing with our lives. And it's also not just going about and trying to fix it ourselves and then say, blame God when it doesn't work out. It's a space about going about our tasks, but trusting that God will provide somehow the means for what we are going through. Maybe not the way that we want, but the way that he deems that we need. He goes on to say, the psalm does not exhort us to put up with suffering. It does not explain it or explain it away. It is rather a powerful demonstration that our place in the depths is not out of bounds from God. I think maybe some of you need to hear this this morning. That the place in the depths that you are right now is not out of the bounds of God. See, we see that wherever or whoever got us into trouble cannot separate us from God. For forgiveness is your habits. It's coming out of Psalm 130. And we are persuaded that God's way with us is redemption and that the redemption, not the suffering, is ultimate. Again, redemption is the way of God. So redemption is ultimate, suffering is not. And that's so important for when we think about faith and exercising faith and trusting God, God redeems his people. That is ultimate. We know because he ascended, he said, I'm coming back. We know what the end for a believer is. And so whatever space we find ourselves in, we know and can breathe and go, this will be temporary. Might be a long temporary because we're bound by time now, but in the light of eternal, it is only so momentary what we suffer now. The Psalm ends, it says this, Israel, put your hope in the Lord. I want to say Riverside, put your hope in the Lord. For with the Lord is unfailing love and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all of their sins. What a truth to proclaim this morning. Uh, Band, why don't you join me up on stage? Uh, I want us to stand... uh, Church, uh, and I'm going to read a passage from Romans 8. And as we're getting ready to kind of wrap up and, and, and end with the song this morning, I don't know what every single one of you are going through this morning. Uh, through relationship, I do know uh, some of what you journey with. Faith in pain and suffering is hope in who God is. And so pray, uh, close your eyes if you want to as a sign of just receiving from the Lord uh, because again, I don't know what you are going through. So maybe just lay it out before the Lord and hear these words. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? 
It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present or the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus, what truth we celebrate this morning. That, Lord, even in the deepest depths of pain and suffering, it is not outside of your bounds. That God, what we are experiencing is temporary because your redemption is ultimate. That we know for every single person here this morning, Jesus who has surrendered their lives and put their faith and trust in you. The ultimate ending is full redemption in you. And so, Father God, for anyone this morning who is really battling, that faith and hope is low, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would remind them of who you are. Holy Spirit, that you would come and comfort them in the space that they're in. That they know that nothing can separate us, nothing can separate them from your love. In your holy name. Amen. Jesus, thank you that we can celebrate and trust in you, a God with unfailing love. Thank you that with our faith we can add hope into who you are in the midst of everything that we're going through. In your holy name, amen.